0: Ruth 1, 1 through 18 and 22. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah, Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of the, his wife Naomi, and the name of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there, But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpha, and the name of the other Ruth. And both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. For it is exceedingly bitter to me, for your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices, and they wept again. And Orpha kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Good morning, everybody here and awake and alive and doing well. It's good to see you this morning. My name is Drew Bennett, one of the pastors here at Redeemer City. Uh, Glad to have you. We continue this morning in a series that we're doing from the book of Ruth. Ruth. And so we're going to be in this, uh, in this little book here in the Old Testament for a number of weeks, probably until about the time that school gets out and summer starts to hit. Although, uh, let's be honest, uh, summer's already here in many ways. At least if you were to come and look at my lawn, you would think I was negligent, although I'm probably breaking many laws trying to keep enough water on it to keep it from dying. It's dying nonetheless. So happy May. Just wait until July and August. But we'll be here for a few weeks. And we're looking forward to this. What a great, this book, what a great book. What great words here for us. What a great story. It was a long, a long passage for Vicky to read, but it's because it's a, it's a fascinating, fantastic story. Uh, the events of the book of Ruth take place, if you see there in verse 1, chapter 1, uh, in the days when the judges ruled. No, That's what we talked about last week. It was a crazy time. It was a crazy world. Much like our world today. And so it has a great deal to teach us about how to live in times like these. Now you add to that, what we really pay attention to this week is that in this crazy world when the judges ruled, this family that we're going to be, you know, staring at for the next few weeks is really in the in the midst of a, a great tragedy. And so in times of great tragedy, not only in just general and, and crazy times, but in times of great tragedy, how do you live? How do you, how do you push forward the, the kingdom of, of heaven, which is what we're called to do in this world? Or we could ask it this way, when, when, um, when the world seems to be falling apart around you, what do you do? How do you problem solve the difficult parts of your personal life, the relationships, for example, that are particularly stressful? We all have, we all have situations, a lot of them relationally and, other, and otherwise, that are hard and stressful. And so what do you do? What does, the, what does this book teach us about how to engage these really difficult, hard, stressful times in our lives? The psychologists tell us that our most natural response, response to stress is one of two things, and you probably know them right. Either fight or flight. Fight or flight. And so when we encounter a, a stressful situation, our nervous system releases adrenaline into the body and of course, adrenaline is there to, to create a response, the, 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 um, the brain begins to divert blood from the, ar- from, from the brain itself to the arms and the legs, away from the parts of the brain that are responsible for region and logic, and so in stress, literally what, what we're learning is when you're under stress, you become stronger, but you become dumber. So in the, in the times when you need to be at your best, you're actually you're physically at your best, but you're mentally and emotionally at your worst. So, so you become stronger and dumber at the same time. You become driven by emotion. And so in that emotional response, the most natural response to stress is fight or flight. The supernatural response, however, the Christian response, what we're going to look at and see today is that it's a response of love. Love is the narrow road. Uh, you can fall off either, you know, on either side of the cliff. But love really is what we're aiming for. This narrow road between these two responses. Now, think of it interpersonally for just a minute. Think of this in your relationships with people. How do you do conflict in your marriage, maybe, or in a friendship? For most of us, it's really one of those two responses. It's either that we confront or we avoid. You can pick a fight. You can sweep it underneath the rug. That's typically how we do this, and, and both are damaging. I mean, sometimes it really does, just avoiding conflict seems to be the loving thing to do, but it's a flight response, and what we learn is that every flight response creates distance. You may, avoid, you may avoid an argument, you may avoid a fight, but the result is that it creates distance that you have to overcome on the other side. Love doesn't do that. Love refuses to move away from the other person, relationally or emotionally or even geographically. It stays put it actually it moves closer in times of stress and, and, uh, and hardship. But picking a fight isn't helpful either, is it? And what we learned even last week is love doesn't try to win. And so somehow the, the response of love really does walk the narrow road between these two, um, these two unhelpful responses. Or you think the same is true for our engagement with the culture as a people of faith. Distinctive Christian discipleship in this crazy world we live in is producing more and more stress as our society continues to be increasingly hostile to our faith. And and that stress that we feel living out our faith in in an age that is hostile to it, it creates these different responses, same kind of fight-or-flight response. And so the church uh, oftentimes positions itself in a way it should never do so. The church should never be either combative on the one hand or completely withdrawn from the culture surrounding it on the other. We've spent too much time as a people of faith in the last 50 years organizing ourselves to politically, to fight the culture wars, and at the same time, ironically, ghettoizing ourselves within the Christian subculture. A crazy world calls for a different response. It's the title of the sermon series, what we're going to kind of come after every week. A crazy world calls for Crazy love. That's the message of this book, and so it's what we're going to be meditating on together as well. Uh, the message of the book of Ruth is this: that the kingdom of God pushes forward through ordinary people living small lives filled with normal, everyday tasks, who display an extraordinary love for others. And so, in this morning, in this first chapter, we meet, we meet with such an ordinary person. Her name is Ruth. And the book bears her name because she is the heroine of the story. The entire book shows her remarkable love and selflessness. But this here in this first chapter, and particularly in verses 16 and 17, there she speaks to Naomi, her mother-in-law. Uh, this is her shining moment. Think about it. This is a, This is. Have you ever seen a mother-in-law daughter-in-law interaction like this one? Don't look at me that way. I know. It is a supernatural. Because most of the time it doesn't work this way in relationships, particularly in that relationship, which is difficult. but this is her shining this is her shining moment. This is why we're still talking about her thousands of years later. So what did she do? And how did she do it? And how can we? I mean these are the questions we're interested in answering. Uh, and, and so we're going to look at this text and, and try to find out some of the answers to those questions. Now we read this past week in 1 Corinthians 13 about what Christian ethicists refer to as the three theological virtues. If you're reading with us in community Bible reading, 1 Corinthians 13, verse 13. Now, so faith, hope, and love abide. You remember this verse? Faith, hope, and love abide, but the greatest of these is love. Faith, hope, love. They are called theological by the church historically because they are they're qualities of character that only Christians know about, that only the Christian gospel can produce them in a person. They are supernatural and they're important to us because they, they always go together. That's why it's important in this, this discussion. They, that love is powered by faith and therefore no love means no faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and therefore no faith means no hope. Uh, Love is hope shape, and therefore no hope means no love. These three really have to all be there. It's all or nothing here. They're all there, or none of them are there. And so if we're going to figure out how to be people who love well, then we have to be people of faith and hope as well. And they're all here in Ruth chapter 1. And so that really is going to form the outline for our our talk this morning. And you see it there. We want to look first at Ruth's love. But we're going to see how Ruth's love is connected, secondly, to her faith. And then ultimately, thirdly, also to her hope. And so if we're going to be people that love in difficult circumstances the way she does, with hesed love, as we talked about, then we, hesed love is really always these three elements. It's always a looking out, a looking outward to others in love, a looking upward to God in faith, and a looking forward to the future in uh, resurrection in the future. It's those three components, faith, hope, and love, and they're all here. So that's going to be the outline this morning. But we're going to begin, if you see there, with the outline I gave you, with with uh, Ruth's love. And we start there, we start with love because it is the central part of the passage. Ruth 1 is broken up into three parts. There is first verses 1-5 through where you see there Elimelech and Naomi leaving Bethlehem for Moab. Then the middle part is this whole exchange between Orpha and Ruth and Naomi with Orpha leaving and Ruth clinging to her mother-in-law. And then third, beginning in verse 19... Naomi and Ruth, along with her, begin to journey from Moab and return to Bethlehem, uh, into God's promises, into the Promised Land. And now, in Hebrew storytelling, the most important part of the story is always in the middle. It's just one of the features of the way the Hebrew people told stories in this, you know, in this time and even today. The writer does it that way on purpose. So Ruth one begins and ends in the same place. If you notice, there in with Bethlehem, but the turning point, the most important part of the story is Ruth's decision in the middle to cling to her mother-in-law Naomi and to vow her love and, and, um, and care for her. And it echoes 1 Corinthians thirteen thirteen, which tells us that the greatest of these three is love. And so let's define love for a minute. Love is looking outward then to others. It's putting the needs of others before your own. It's thinking about others more and yourself less Uh, This is what Ruth does. And so let's look at it. It's really remarkable. Uh, Look here in the story with me. All of the men are dead. These women have, they they, they now have no way of providing for themselves. Their prospects were not good. And so Naomi decides, you know, it's probably time to go home because maybe there'll be somebody there who can help take care of me. She told her daughter, daughters-in-law, you should save yourselves. I'm as good as dead. My life is over because it was. Orpha, Orpah, she says, sounds good to me, and she leaves. Ruth, on the other hand, stayed. And in staying, this is in essence what she was saying to to Naomi. She said, Naomi, your life isn't over. My life's over. Because I'm going to put my life on you. I'm going to make it the goal of my life to love you. And I know what that's going to mean for me, but it's going to mean good things for you. Your life isn't over. Your life isn't over, but my life is, and that—that that is hesed, and that is the theme of this book. That little word in the Hebrew that's so important in the Old Testament. Ruth is a model of hesed, and so let's look at the mechanics of her of her love for Naomi here. It, we really are focusing in on her words there. Look at again at verses sixteen and seventeen. It's worth it's worth reading again uh, because they they really are immortal immortal words in some ways. Where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God shall be my God. And where you die, I will die. And there are we buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. It's stunning. But we see some important components of what this word hesed really means. I have three things just to kind of bring out the meaning of this word and exactly what we see Ruth doing here. First... What you notice is is that hesed love like this, the first thing it does is it lands. This is covenant love we're talking about. This is one-way love. It's love that's not based on how you're feeling or how other people are doing. It's love that's not based on how I'm feeling, how other people are doing. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote to a young couple from prison about marital love, and he said to them, uh, it's a wise piece, a sage piece of advice about marriage. He said, it, it, From this point forward, it is not your love that sustains the marriage, it is the marriage that sustains your love. Hesed is based on commitment, not feelings. That's good news because feelings, as we know, are want to come and go, but as they come and go, if you're loving with Hesed love, there's no fluctuation. It's based on loyalty not the other person and how they're treating you. And so it's a love, unlike any other, that, that a love that does not treat people according to their sins nor repay them according to their iniquities. It's a love that can, that can treat people irrespective of the way they're acting or the way they're behaving or the way they're responding in return. It's constant. It never gets weary. It never grows cold. Ruth committed to Naomi here. Do you see that? She bound herself to her mother-in-law. She, she chose her. And, and if we're going to be doing Hesed like this as well, then, then we have to start choosing too. When you do Hesed, you, you choose, you commit, you land. It's never general. It's always specific and local. You narrow down your life. You look at a person. You look at a small group of friends. In our context, you know, it's a church or even a, a small group within the church, a community group or a discipleship group or something. And you say to those people, I choose you. I choose you. And you commit. You say, yes. To them, which of course means you say no to a bunch of other things and to other people, by the way, for the sake of that commitment. And this is, you know, if you wonder, this is one of the reasons why we take vows to one another in this church. Because the vows help us to choose one another. They help us to prioritize rightly our relationships in a covenant community. They help us say yes to one another and to say no to other things. So in saying yes here to Naomi, Ruth was saying no to lots of other things. Do you see that? Think about the things she's saying no to and her yes here to her mother-in-law. She's saying no to her mother and father, which I'm sure they would have been glad to see her again. She's saying no to her homeland, to living in her home country. She's got to you know, now she's got, a, I mean, have you ever tried to go live in another country? Typically the food's not very good and it's, it's hard to adjust and all of those kinds of things. It's, it's, hard, it's hard to do that. She says no to the comforts of living where she's from. She says, more importantly, she says she's saying no to a husband. There really aren't any prospects for marriage for her, which means she's going to live a hard life of loneliness and, and isolation from community and, and hardship financially. So in order to love with Hesed, you have to do this. You have to do what she did. You have to manage your yeses and your noes because Hesed is exclusive. So it first lands. You see, you see Ruth landing here on Naomi, but secondly... The second thing that's characteristic of hesed love is that it loses. It's uneven love. It always gives more than it gets in return. At least there will be times when it feels that way. We've all experienced this, right? Bitterness is weariness over the unevenness of love. That's what bitterness is bitterness is i've been giving and giving and giving and giving and i've got nothing in return and i start to just get overwhelmed by it. and all i can see in the future is more giving and more giving and more giving and no receiving and you get and you get weary and that's where bitterness comes so l- let's talk about how ruth lost let's talk about how she loses because she really does lose a lot here if ruth left like her sister-in-law then naomi would die that's the implication But if she stayed, Naomi would live, but only because she would die. And that's the choice that she was confronted with. She chose to die so that Naomi could live. Naomi needed a family to take care of her, but they were all dead. Ruth had to give up her family, ties. She had to give up her friends in Moab and the possibility of a future with a husband and children to meet Naomi's needs of family. Naomi needed companionship. Ruth the only way that Naomi could have companionship was for Ruth to endure loneliness. Remember, she's dealing with the shock of widowhood too. Don't forget that, right? Who's the widow in the passage? They both are. She, she's dealing with the loss of her husband as well. She has to feel incredible vulnerability, and yet what you, you see no hint of self-pity, unlike Naomi. Had she stayed, she could have found a husband among her people, but she gave all of that up. I mean, who who's she going to marry if she goes to Bethlehem? She would have no rights. She would be a foreigner. So she's probably going to face. She knows she's going to face per, you know prejudice if she goes there. I mean, to go with Naomi offered her nothing and and cost her everything, and yet she went. I mean, it's stunning. And here's my favorite part. You want to know my favorite part? Uh, look at verse 18. How does Naomi respond? I mean, this, this, I mean, the most, some of the most immortalized words of love and care and friendship ever recorded in the history of, of words. Ruth pours out her heart to Naomi, and in verse 18, we're told that, that Naomi just, just really just stops talking. <laughs> Naomi got love. She got the help that she needed. She got companionship. Ruth didn't even get a thank you. Think about that oh, daughter-in-law, you're the greatest. No, she's just, all right, let's go. So she's unappreciated. When they get to Bethlehem, it gets even better. We're going to talk about this in a few weeks. She's pushed aside and ignored by the women there and by, and by Naomi too. She was the hero and nobody noticed. She got no credit except ours today, thousands of years later. She's completely unseen And how hard is it to live when you feel completely unseen? And yet, what you see in this woman is she's completely unfazed. She just continued to love Naomi. That's all she does throughout the rest of the book, too. She doesn't stop to consider how uneven the relationship is. And so, if you and I are going to do chesed love like her, then we have to not only start choosing, but to stop counting. We have to stop keeping score. Love keeps no record. 1 Corinthians 13 says, of wrongs or otherwise. And so the temptation is to always be doing a cost-benefit analysis to see who's winning. And really the choice before us is just this. You can win or you can love. You can win or you can love. And if you choose to love, then one of the things you have to do is you have to decide beforehand. You have to decide ahead of time that you're going to lose. But then thirdly, so we see that this chesed love here, it, it lands... You see Naomi choosing her mother-in-law, it, it, uh, it loses, and then thirdly, it lasts. The text says, verse 14, it's a really important part of the whole chapter there, that Ruth clung to Naomi. Orpah kissed her, but Ruth clung to her. And, and that's important because Ruth, one, is all about leaving. The Hebrew word shub, which is translated to leave or to go back, it's used 12 times here in this chapter. It's, it's the key. It's the link throughout the whole text. So everyone's leaving. Elimelech and Naomi they leave Bethlehem for Moab. Orpah, Orpah left Naomi to stay in Moab. They leave Moab to go back to, to Bethlehem. All of this leaving in the middle of all of that leaving, the only the only one that doesn't leave is Ruth. Ruth clings. And so, if you love someone like that, with 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 Hesed like that, it means you're trapped. I thought that would get a chuckle, like a nervous chuckle. You know what I mean? You mean I'm trapped? Yeah. It means you're trapped by your commitment to them. It's love with no exit strategy. It doesn't matter how, how hard it gets. You keep loving because your love, again, is not based on how you're feeling or how the other person is doing. It doesn't matter how hard they are to love. It's not relevant. And so if we're going to love like this, we got to start choosing. we got to stop counting. But the last thing is we got to keep going. Don't grow weary, the Bible says. Don't grow weary in doing good. There is a weariness that comes with the work of love, with the work of doing good to others. And so you have to keep going. So much, so much of love is just enduring. It's just putting one foot in front of the other. It's so romantic, isn't it? The great love stories are the ones that last. Not the ones that burn bright but then burn out. We gotta keep going. So love, love starts choosing and it stops counting and it keeps going. So how do you love like that? How was Ruth able to love the way we see her loving her mother-in-law here? Where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. Nothing, nothing on earth is going to ever cause me to stop loving you. How do you love like that? Ruth was able to love and to look outward, outside of herself, outside of her own needs and, and concerns because... I think what we learn from the text is that she first looked upward to God in faith. She didn't turn inward. Uh, in the middle of great personal tragedy, it's f- amazing she didn't give in to self-pity. Naomi did, but not Ruth. Ruth continued to love because of her faith. So what do we mean by faith then? Well, faith is looking upward. If, if love is looking outward, faith is looking upward. It's looking to God in Christ. Faith means living your life on the basis of who God is, not how you're feeling. Your emotions are being directed by the promises that he has made to you and not how things are going in your life. Fuck, like I need to say that again. Faith, looking up to God in faith means that your, your, your life is, you're living on the basis of who God is and, and not how you're feeling. And your emotions are being directed by the promises that he has made to you and not how things happen to be going at the moment in your life. Faith is living your whole life with an upward glance. And what the Bible says is that there's a connection between faith and love. Paul, the apostle in Galatians 5, says that faith energizes love. That you need faith to love. I mean, 1 Corinthians 13 tells us that one day there will be no more faith. Have you thought about that? There will be no more faith. There's going to be a day where there will be no more faith. We'll see God face to face. And there will be no more faith. Only love. But for now, it takes faith to love. And the reason it takes faith to love is because it's just too hard to do on our own. Didn't you hear? I mean, not to pick on Lauren, but didn't you hear when she just started to even just for a moment talk about how hard it was to love how hard it is to love somebody that's hard to love? It, oh, it just kind of comes out of you when you do that. We've all experienced it. And so we need we need another source. I mean, the only way to love others with Hesed love is to know that God is always loving me with Hesed love. My love for others is the echo of His love for me. His love always comes first, and this is this is hinted at in the text. If you look at verse eight, there with me. When Naomi blessed her daughters-in-law, she said to them, "May the Lord deal kindly." Guess what word that is? Hesed. May the Lord do hesed with you, right? God does hesed. He he lands. His love lands. It's covenantal. It's not based on how he's feeling or how we're doing. Can I get an amen? Oh, that was pathetic. <laughs> okay, I mean, good grief. Thank you. That's a that's listen. You need to hear that again, obviously, because it didn't get past the hardness of your heart there in that moment. Do you know? And don't this you don't know, don't don't try to make up for it on the other side of this because that doesn't make really me feel good. Okay, it's gone. We we'll just we'll, we'll we'll get it again in a minute. But you need you need to know. You need to know that his love for you is not based on how he's feeling, nor on how you're doing. That's good news. He commits. It's covenant love. He chooses. I mean, the doctrine of election is a beautiful doctrine. God chooses his people. It's one-way love. It's all grace. His love loses. Just think of how uneven his love is for you and me. What, what does he gain? What does God gain from loving you and me? Nothing. What did it cost him to love you and me? Oh. His love lasts. He loves with an everlasting love. No beginning and no end. The world would sooner end than he would stop loving you. That's how God's loved you and me. And and, <laughs> and when that actually comes inside and produces an amen in us that's like spontaneous in there because we feel it on the inside, when that begins to happen, then we can love too. We can land, we can lose, we can we can last. The reason the reason we have such a hard time with that is when is I'm not picking on you, but is because because it's not in there's not the amen there yet because it's not real here yet. Faith energizes love. Uh, the beginning of the book of Ruth is a is a story of broken faith. Uh, this is important to get the context here. It's it's subtle in the text. There's a famine we're told in Bethlehem. Now the name of the city Bethlehem means house of bread. So think about this for just a minute. What what we're told here at the very beginning is there's no bread in the house of bread. Naomi's name, if you look in the, you can probably look down at the bottom of your Bible where it references her name. Naomi's name means, means pleasant. Now how pleasant has Naomi's life become? And so what you see here is life is mocking, life was mocking them. Something There's been an ironic, awful turn in their life. God God seems to be absent. And so, in the midst of God's absence, in the midst of, of, of life just mocking this family the way that it is, Elimelech and Naomi decide to move, move to Moab because there was food there. That's reasonable enough. But, according to the Bible, it's an act of unbelief. They, what, what's happening here is they did not trust God to provide for them. Just like Abraham, who went to Egypt during the famine in the land of promise. They're breaking faith. And that really teaches us what sin is. Sin is every, every sin is breaking faith. It's turning away from God and looking somewhere else for what he has not provided that we're sure we need. And it brings the wrath and curse of God. Now, the text, the text doesn't say that this is why the men died. Be careful. Let's don't Be careful there. But I think what, one of the things we can learn here is that in our personal tragedies, we are hardly victims. That's what people of faith believe anyway. Now the rest of chapter 1, if the beginning is a story of broken faith, the rest of chapter 1 is a story of repentance and a turning back to God. I've already noted the repetition of the Hebrew verb shub. Uh, It means to turn back. It is the word in the scriptures that refers to God's people in their faithlessness turning back to covenant faithfulness to God. It's It's a turning away from sin and unbelief and turning back to the Lord to return to him, to repent. It's the word using the Old Testament to describe uh, this, this turning away from, from all of our idolatry and sin and unbelief and turning to him. So Naomi's decision, verse 6, to return, you see that word there? To return from Moab and go back to Bethlehem was an act of faith and repentance. Now it was a small act because we're going to see she's still full of, full of bitterness. She says, this God of mine, he makes all things bitter. That's still what Naomi believes. She's grieving, but... She's moving in the right direction. She's got a weak faith, but, but a weak faith is still faith. We're going to talk about that next week. And then there's Ruth. And all of the commentators agree that Ruth's words to Naomi, verses 16 and 17, where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. Your, your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. That it's, just, it's more than just an expression of her friendship with her mother-in-law. Uh, those words really are her confession of faith. Something's happened to Ruth. She's become a believer here because of, of her time with this family. She's, she's expressing covenant faith in Yahweh. She uses his covenant name in verse 17. May Yahweh do to me, you know, and, and more so if, if I don't keep the, the, the obligations that I've made to you today. So she's, she has become a, covenant, a part of the covenant community of Yahweh. So Ruth's, Ruth's having faith here. She's expressing faith here. And, and what we're to learn is that her faith was the source of her love for her mother-in-law. Now, what does all this teach us? This story of faith. This is a story of faith. Well, I think a number of things. First, I think it teaches us that the most important relationship in your life is your relationship with God. That if there's a problem in any other relationship, it's because there's a problem between you and, and the Lord. If you're, if you're going to love well, if you're going to love well in your life, you have to first see yourself as a sinner before God deserving his wrath and judgment. And that's, that's the problem that you have to solve first. If you're having a hard time, if you go back to your, you know, Algebra 2 class, if you're having a hard time on the horizontal axis of your life, the reason always is because you're not living properly on the vertical axis. When you encounter a problem horizontally, you have to go back. What you do is you have to go back to the vertical axis. I mean, this is a sermon about love, but it's really a sermon about faith because you can't love without faith. So do you have faith? Do you know that you, like these people have turned away from god in faithlessness you've you've said to him i don't trust you to provide for me and so i got to go somewhere else and try to figure out a way to provide for myself and it's the undoing of so much good in our lives but we've we've sinned against him we've turned our backs on him we've broken faith with him and yet he has not just let us ride off into the sunset but in jesus christ he has pursued us to the ends of the earth died for us to save us from our sins and to bring us back to himself do you know that See, if you know that, then when you encounter problems here, you go back to that reality. And it begins to undo the things on the horizontal axis. Well, we also learn that life is hard. Can I get an amen? Life is hard. Thank you. Life is hard, but love is even harder. Life is hard enough on its own. We live in a fallen, broken world full of selfish, awful people, just like me. That's life, but to love, to put yourself to the work of of just not saying, forget all of those people, but to love, to move towards some of those selfish, sinful, awful people like me, (laughs) that's even harder. Love, love means willingly making life that is already hard, harder. Because you choose to enter into the brokenness with other people. You don't check out because other people are hard. You endure the story that God is permitting in your life. You keep showing up. You refuse, you just refuse to to walk away. And that means, you know what that means? It means more sadness. It means more heartbreak. It means more interruptions. And when it gets hard, you cleave, just like like Ruth did. You don't leave when you get your feelings hurt. You you move toward the person who hurt you, not away from them. You're just inviting life that's already hard to be harder. And so when life gets hard, and when love gets hard, it's hard not to turn inward, isn't it? If if you you know if if you look at your t- your outline again, we're noticing the way Ruth looked outward, and she looked upward, and she looked forward. Her mind and her imagination were full of. Of her mother-in-law and the people around her and their needs. They were full of God and his character and his promises. And her mind and heart were full of the future that he was preparing for her. She was looking outward. She was looking upward. She was looking forward. Where was she not looking? She doesn't turn inward. Naomi gets bitter. Orpa is is pragmatic. Ruth keeps loving. She keeps looking upward, outward, and forward, not inward. She doesn't, she doesn't worry about herself. She doesn't act to protect herself in every way, in any way. And that's why she, we, we continue to read about her. Because turning inward and not looking upward, outward, and forward is unbelief. It's the same as Elimelech and Naomi leaving Bethlehem for Moab. It's not trusting God to provide for you. If faith energizes love, if love and faith are connected, then every love problem is a faith problem. And therefore, every failure to love is unbelief. We love by faith, not by sight. But then we have one more piece, and then I'm done. We've seen Ruth's love. We've seen her faith, but we have to look at her hope as well and finish there. So chesed looks looks outward to others. It looks upward to God. It looks forward to resurrection. Hope is looking forward. It is faith directed to the future. So love and hope go together. In order to to love today, you have to know the promise of tomorrow. Can I say that again? In order to love today, you have to know the promise of tomorrow. That's the only way to do it. In order to love today, you have to know the promise of tomorrow. That's hope. The Bible doesn't use the word the way we do. We say, I hope my team wins the game today. Now, it's an expression for us of uncertainty. I, I, I hope means I wish. I'm not sure, but... I, I, sure, I sure wish that this would happen, but in the Bible, the word hope always means certainty. It's a word for certainty. So one example, Galatians 5.5, 5 says, Through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness, we're waiting for the hope of righteousness, Paul says. So he doesn't mean when I get to heaven, I hope God finds me righteous. I'm not sure. You know, I, don't, I, don't, I can't be 100% positive, but I really am I'm hoping that's the case. No, he means that there is a righteousness, there is a verdict that is out there in my future. And when I'm face to face with God, it hasn't come yet. I feel it in part now, but it is an absolute certainty that when I get there, it'll be waiting for me. That's what he's saying. Hope is being certain about things you don't see now because they're still in the future, but they are just as real to you now as they will be to you when you get there. Let me say Hope is being certain about things that you don't see now because they're still in the future, but they are just as real to you now in the moment as they will be then. We're talking about the promises of God. Right? The promises of God. Can I just give you a few that just came? I was on a... I rode a train this week. Isn't that cool? I rode a train from South Florida uh, back to Central Florida. It's really great. Forty bucks to get to, from West Palm to Winter Haven, in case you're wondering. But on the train, I just, just a few, just really quick promises of God that came to my mind. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. Psalm 126. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Philippians 1.6. All things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to His purpose. Romans eight twenty eight. Don't grow weary in doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Galatians six nine. These are the promise. they are examples of the promises of God. Now, do you notice their future orientation? They are future tense. And in your life, you have you have your circumstances, and then you have God's promises. And sometimes it feels like the two are a million miles apart. Hope is holding on to the promises when you can't draw any connection between your now and your then. Let me say this way. Life is a story. And all stories have a beginning, a middle, and an end. Uh, all stories have an introduction and then a crisis and then ultimately the happily ever after. You know what the best stories? The best stories are the ones that can... We, we, we go to the movie. You know we go to the movies all the time. We go to see the same story over and over again. Are you with me? You know that, Right? You know how it's going to end. Why do you go if you know how it's going to end? Because it's the exquisite part of that middle part where there's a crisis and you can't find the way out of the crisis. Those are the best, those are the best stories. Now, the reason Netflix, binge watching on Netflix, the, the, the annoying part of those Netflix shows is they keep you in that crisis. You have to watch like 13 hours of the show to get out of the crisis. <laughs> it drives me nuts. I want to like just bang my head on a wall. I don't have the patience for it. I need to be able to go to an hour and 40 minute movie and get through the whole thing in an hour and 40 minutes. You with me? Anybody else? I can't stand, like, I don't want to be in crisis for 10 weeks because it takes me 10 weeks to watch 10 episodes. I don't want to live there. But every story, an introduction, a crisis, and then ultimately the happily ever after. But the middle part can be scary and frustrating. Hope, hope is the ability to live in the middle with the end in view. It's being able to face the moment. Listen to me. Being able to face the moment of your life knowing it's just a moment. It's not the whole story. God is writing a story in your life. Wherever you are right now, it's just right now. It's not the end of the story. It's part of the story. It's not the end of the story. It's part of the story. Whatever crisis you're in the middle of, Christian hope is... That the end of the story and the promise that God makes to us is the promise of resurrection. Now, where in the text do we see this? We have a hint, just a hint. In verse 6, we find that Naomi hears that God has visited his people and that the drought is over. Do you see that? There's this little hint. We're going to get to this. I'm setting things up for later in this series that we're going to talk about in greater detail. But here we see God breaking into the story of this family in deep personal crisis, everything, one through five, verses one through five, everything that could possibly go wrong for them has gone wrong. And then in verse six, there's this little hint of hope. But God visited his people and there's bread. God broke into the story to create this little resurrection, that there was bread in the house of bread again. Now it becomes more explicit Later in the chapter, it's why I picked up verse 22 for us to read, where we're told that Naomi and Ruth, after all of their sojourning, they come back to Bethlehem. And when do they arrive? At the beginning of barley harvest. It's a way of foreshadowing. What's the the text is telling us? It's been bad. It's been bad to this point, but there's some good things coming. There's good things coming. I mean, the barley harvest is a joyous time, food and beer. So Ruth's story is a story of resurrection. It's a story of resurrection, but why use that word? Let me just, let me close. Why use that word resurrection? And the reason I use the word resurrection is because ultimately Ruth's story is a gospel story. It's a death resurrection story. That every act of love takes the shape of the gospel. The shape of Jesus's love for me is my death for your life. The shape of my love for others is the same. Love is laying aside... My rights, humbling myself into nothingness, becoming like a servant to others in obedience to God, just as Jesus has done for me. Love is going down into death, like the seed that gets planted in the ground and then bursts forth with new life. Love is life-giving death for others, but death is never the end of the story. The gospel, we know, doesn't end with Jesus' death. It ends with what? His resurrection. And His resurrection on Easter Sunday means for you that every death you die for others doesn't end in death either but resurrection. You may not know when. You may not know how. You may not know what it will look like. You may not even experience it on this side of eternity. But if you endure in love, resurrection always comes. That is God's promise that every tear will become shouts of joy that the result of every hard thing will be good. That the fruit of all do, go, doing good will be a harvest of righteousness for the doer and the do-e. That there is a sorrow, there, there is not a sorrow on the earth that heaven can't heal, as we sang. So, don't lose heart. Don't leave when it gets hard. Keep going, keep loving. That's the message of this first part of Ruth. Keep looking outward towards others in love. Keep looking upward to God in faith. Keep looking forward towards resurrection and hope. Knowing that the kingdom of God pushes forward through ordinary, normal, everyday people like you and me who display an extraordinary love for others. That's what God's called us to. And so let's pray and ask him to continue to shape us. Father, come now as we sing. And as we meditate together on your great love for us, come and continue to shape, shape us as a people after the image of your dear son, the Lord Jesus, who took upon himself our sin and suffered and died so that we might know life. Come, come and, and, uh, and help us, give us the faith we need, the strength we need, the hope we need to continue to persevere in love that you might be glorified in us, uh, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, if you don't feel a little unnerved by what uh, the call of love in your life, let me just challenge you, maybe you're not there yet. Uh, God has called us to a kind of love that should be unnerving uh, because He has given to us uh, a love that is overwhelming. So if you, if the demands of love feel overwhelming to you, it's because you're you're being overwhelmed with love already. That's again the promise of of this benediction. And so here is where you're, here is where you anchor your heart uh, to these words in faith. Here is where you allow your future uh, and what you believe to be true of your future to be dictated to you by the promises that he makes to you here and now in these words. Here's the promise that in in Christ Jesus, he has turned towards you to bless you, uh, to go with you wherever he sends you. uh, And that is good news. So receive these words in the promise of them. uh, Anchor your heart to them and then go in love. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Amen. Go in his peace.